This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening and welcome. You're listening to The Cable Live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Today felt like a day of calm in so many ways uh, after the huge explosion upwards uh, for bonds yesterday, for equities yesterday, the dollar rolling over. Today, a little calmer, Alex. So we've got the FTSE 100 actually rolling over, uh, some of the healthcare stocks weighing. The pounds actually had a relatively good day, but on the continent, Cacarons and the DAX both tracking higher uh, on A, some good news out of uh, Richemont, the, the luxury company, uh, and B, also the possibility of uh, an easing of COVID restrictions in China. Yep. And then also here in the U.S., we got a little bit of follow through buying in the equity market from yesterday's monster rally, though not in the Dow because the defensive sectors like healthcare are rolling over a bit. You also got the U-Mish number, though. Markets moved higher on that, despite the fact that sentiment was lower and inflation expectations higher. Go figure on that one. U-Mish, University of Michigan Consumer Confidence Data. That's how the kids um, talk here in the U.S., you know. It is. I'm sure that's exactly how they speak. <laughs> U-Mish. Uh, and crypto, it was, it and there's a crypto story. Don't forget that. It was, it was, yeah. That that is how the kids talk. Certainly, the crypto story is fast. I, FTX is going into bankruptcy. SBF Sam Bankman-Fried is now no longer CEO. He is going to write apparently some sort of an account of what is happening here. The lawyers are already starting to circle. Nobody quite knows what this picture looks like. People are comparing it to Enron. People are comparing it to Lehman. People are comparing it to MF Global. Uh, I think there's going to be. A lot of idiosyncratic factors here, which mean it's its own story. But it's fascinating to see just how fast this has mm-hmm. happened. Yeah. And, and and sort of how many people are going to be losing money? I mean, the SoftBank thing, they wrote down, what, $100 million? But they lost like $7 billion in the quarter. So that feels like a drop in the bucket at the end of the day. Absolutely. We'll come back. We'll talk about more of this in just a moment. We need to talk as well about what is happening with the UK economy. Dismal data out of the UK economy, pointing towards certainly portending uh, a significant recession for the UK. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Yeah. What was it you said earlier? Brethren. Brethren. I I know. It was very unlike Alex, but you know. Yeah. That's how the kids speak. I'm just going to point that one out. (laughs) Um, uh, And then we've got the whole story out of of the Eurozone economy as well. We'll we'll hear from Paolo Gentiloni, the Economy Commissioner, in just a moment. Before we hear from all of those stories about all those stories, let's hear from Charlie Pelley. Hi. Thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. British climate activists who have blocked roads and splattered artworks with soup say they are suspending a days-long protest that has clogged a major highway around London. The group Just Stop Oil, which wants the government to halt new oil and gas projects, has sparked headlines, debate, and a government crackdown on disruptive protests since it launched its actions earlier this year. The group said today it was pausing its campaign of civil resistance on the M25. Police say a motorcycle officer was injured earlier in the week, actually Wednesday, in a collision with lorries during a rolling roadblock sparked by the protest. The UK economy, as Guy mentioned, shrank in 
in the third quarter for the first time since the final lockdown of the pandemic as the cost of living crisis squeezed spending and the extra bank holiday for the Queen's funeral shut businesses. Gross domestic product fell 0.2%, marking the start of what is expected to be a protracted recession. And the European Commission says the Eurozone faces a grim winter as a recession bites just as double-digit inflation grips the region and war rages nearby. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. So at seven o'clock this morning, the data started to drop onto our screens, telling us what the what state the UK economy is in. The number that instantly sprang to mind was the point two. Um, the UK economy shrank point two in the third quarter from the previous quarter. Now, that number was actually expected uh, to be even worse. It was expected to be negative 0.5, but it was actually 0.2. And certainly the Queen's funeral and the bank holidays all kind of contributed maybe to that miss. But, But the message from that data was really clear. The UK is heading for a protracted recession. It is going to be a tough recession. And it is potentially going to be made worse as well by the fiscal consolidation that we're going to find out about next week. Uh, That fiscal consolidation is going to be laid out by the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt. But before he did that today, he commented on the GDP figures. And this is what he had to say. Well, the Bank of England says that we are likely to be in recession. This is disappointing, but not entirely unexpected news. And what we need to do now is to present a plan to the country to tackle the root cause of the issues we face, which is inflation, and a plan that protects the most vulnerable. And that's what I must do next Thursday. The Chancellor of the Exchequer speaking a little bit earlier on in advance of next Thursday. Alex, the the UK economy is, is rolling over fairly quickly. That is certainly what the data seems to suggest. You're certainly seeing that very clearly uh, in the housing market. In some ways, it's surprising uh, that the consumer is being um, sort of is able to to have thus far dodged the loss of this um, Mm -hmm. because basically we had pent up savings. um, We are still seeing people trading down, but they're still spending. Uh, But but the the impact this winter, and we're going to talk about what is happening in the eurozone in just a moment. Sort of the impact is about to be felt. And I think this is the real challenge from this data. Uh, the, the data are already soft and we're not into winter yet. And I mm-hmm. think that's going to be the huge challenge for the Bank of England here as it tries to negotiate policy, as it tries to work out exactly how high and how far it needs to take rates. Yeah, apparently what the Resolution Foundation um, said that the UK is facing the quickest return to recession since 1975. Um, that yeah. doesn't sound too good. Um, I guess the question is then, as you were mentioning what the BOE does, we were talking to Danny Blanchflower. Like, so spoiler, he's dovish. We, we know that. But he was pretty forceful in saying that the data is going to be so bad Employment's going to get so bad that the BOE is actually going to have to cut rates. Yep. That is so hard to envision. And there's going to have to be fiscal help. But it's so hard to envision at a time when the rhetoric out of both fiscal and monetary authorities is like the exact opposite. So it's interesting because you're starting to maybe get that message coming out of the Bank of England. Um, Cutting Sylvia rates? Te- yeah. Well, no. Sylvia Tanreo is talking about this. The, the headline that really caught my eye uh, in the Financial Times this afternoon as I was working my way through it. UK interest rates already higher than needed, already higher mm-hmm. than needed, said Silvio Tenreo. She's, an EC, she's a Bank of England policymaker. So maybe we're already at the point where actually the bank maybe does need to start cutting rates. And it's going to be interesting to see exactly how the MPC 
in aggregate, deals mm-hmm. with this. Now, there clearly are some on the MPC who feel that policy needs to tighten from here, maybe not as high as 5%, but needs to tighten. But some of the external members are already starting to talk about the fact that maybe we've already done too much. I think it also then becomes a question of can the BOE then, since there are some idiosyncratic risks in the UK right now, um, can the BOE diverge from other central banks that much? I mean, the Fed... So there's two points of thought. One, like the Fed's going to have to be in the same kind of situation the UK is in just maybe a little bit later. Or B, they're going to still hike to 5%. Maybe they get there more slowly, but then they stay there for a while. Can the BOE and Fed diverge that much? I I think you will see that in sterling. And, and, And if there is a big divergence, that in theory would be where it would show up. But let's say you're in an environment where US inflation is starting to roll over. And we've seen what's happened with the dollar over the last few days. Yeah, Sterling has actually risen. And you do wonder whether actually this is a dollar story rather than a UK story. Maybe the Bank of England does have more latitude than we give it credit for But if the dollar is coming down because the Fed is taking a less aggressive stance. But what about euro pound? Because that also has rallied. Uh, uh, yeah, but, but, but maybe, the, maybe the, actually the bigger move that we're going to have to see here is from the ECB. The ECB at the moment is talking very, very tough. And today we're going to hear from Gentiloni in just a moment. Um, we did hear from the Commission talking about the fact that inflation is going to remain elevated for a while. But maybe let, let's say that data could be wrong. And let's say the Eurozone needs to roll over as well in terms mm-hmm. of the aggressive policy that's taking on monetary, monetary policy. Yeah. I mean, I think what we can definitely say at this moment is that all data is probably wrong. <laughs> that every well, forecast is going to be just thrown to the window. We don't know well, what upside or downside, but how do you possibly predict what's going to happen? The data, uh, maybe the data is not wrong. Maybe our read and our assessment of where the data is going could be wrong. That's the tricky bit. Anyway, we'll talk more about this in a moment. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. The European Commission today published its economic forecasts and they make grim reading. We are heading for a incredibly difficult winter in the Eurozone within the EU. There is a recession coming. Double-digit inflation is likely to remain a big problem. Alex and I caught up with the European Commission's Paolo Gentiloni. He is the economy minister. I asked him whether or not this is stagflation. What we are seeing, of course, is uh, that we are at a turning point. We had uh, this year, at the end of this year, we will have had uh, 3.2 growth in the European Union, which is quite a number. And we had a surprisingly positive third quarter. We were expecting already a negative third quarter, it was positive. So now our forecast that I presented today uh, describe a contraction for the last quarter of this year and the fourth, first quarter of next year. So a winter contraction, if you want. But already in the second half of next year, a uh, subdued uh, recovery. So at the end of the day, our forecast for next year is not on the negative, mm-hmm. but it is slightly positive and a little bit better, meaning 1.6% positive in 2024. Inflation, you are right, will still remain high. We expect inflation peaking at the end of this year, but the decreasing of inflation according to our forecast, will be very gradual. So next year we'll have 7% of inflation, which is still quite high. 
Final point, at the moment, uh, of course, I understand the uh, messages of the professor in terms of expectations, but at the moment, we don't see um, any uh, disruption on uh, the labor market. We have mm -hmm. the highest level of employment since decades, very slow unemployment yeah. rate, and we expect an increase of the unemployment rate of 0.2% for next year, which is quite, quite limited. Yes. Um, Commissioner? The problem is more with purchasing power than with unemployment. Commissioner, to unpack that, one part of this story is that Germany is going to grow a lot more slowly than some of the Eurozone countries. That's going to have to have some sort of the enormous ripple effect uh, among its brethren. Can you talk me through that, please? Well, of course, Germany, uh, the, the simpler explanation is that Germany uh, had a fall in GDP uh, m much more limited than other European countries. For example, uh, Germany economy in 2020 uh, was on the negative three point something, and the Italian economy nine point something, or the Spanish economy 11 point something. So from a certain point of view, the fact that in other European countries you have a stronger uh, rebound in these years is justified. Of course, in Germany we have at least two special issues. One is how important the uh, Russian fossil fuels, cheap Russian fossil fuels were for Germany. And second, how important the, uh, the trade, so the current account, uh, is for German economy. And we know that we have difficulties in the global trade. Uh, and these two things, um, gas and global trade, are uh, probably affecting specifically the German economy. That was Paolo Gentiloni, European Commissioner uh, for the Economy, speaking with Guy and I. Brethren, that was the brethren line, by the way, because that is, that is how the kids speak. But um, we also went on to talk to him about China um, and the relationship with Germany. And he was basically saying uh, a China economy rebound would see negative spillover effects. Less about, yay, the growth impulse from Germany, but more, oh no, they're going to compete for stuff like gas and LNG, and that's going to create a lot more um, inflationary pressures um, in the Eurozone. Absolutely. I, it's it's going to be... It's, the UK is going to have the same issue as well. The mix between fiscal and monetary is going to be fascinating. Mm -hmm. Really fascinating over the next few months to watch. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. The other story that we've been tracking throughout the last week or so has been the, the complete, utter, and total meltdown of what happened with FTX. So here are some of the latest headlines for you. Sam Bankman-Fried's um, digital asset empire, the whole empire, the FTX group, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in Delaware. His crypto trading firm, the hedge fund, Alameda Research, um, listed about $10 billion of assets and liability each. Um, Cyprus is planning to suspend FTX operating license. Um, 
You have uh, the Bahamas, which is where it's also licensed, is freezing its own assets. Um, BlockFi is also a crypto lender, and they're saying it can no longer operate because it's not 100% clear of its exposure to FTX. It also made um, a loan to Almeida, and they don't really know now what the loan was backed with. It was backed by consumer funds, so they had to wind up freezing um, their assets as well. It does, though, Guy, at this point, look like it is just a crypto issue, even if it's an Enron moment, even if it's a MF Global moment. It's still that in the crypto space, maybe. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I think that's it's the maybe bit that I'm still kind of wondering about. I do feel like while while everything with crypto is turbocharged, supercharged, and things move very, very quickly, it does... I don't think we know yet the full implications of this. I it, it took it, uh, the, the impact of Lehman wasn't clear for a while. The impact of Enron was unknown for a while, and I think this may be the same. I don't mm-hmm. know. I it's gonna you got a weekend coming up. You've just had a crazy few days. Let's let, let's wait and see where the dust settles. Yeah, and obviously the idea is you're definitely gonna get tighter regulation. That is most definitely 100% um, happening. But who does it? In what region? And what body within that region does it, I think, is the question. And it needs to happen pretty quickly. Um, What I'm also interested in, too, is what kind of regulation still makes it a decentralized financial product? Like, If you like Bitcoin, you like blockchain, you like crypto, because it's not traditional finance, but the regulation needs to make it more traditional finance, so you know the customer assets are actually backed. Is that then still decentralized? Aren't you just nope. kind of like, in some nope. ways, nope. a boring but this, bank? But this is the yeah. So somebody uh, we were talking to a lawyer on, on TV a little bit earlier on who was who was making the point that um, crypto back, Bitcoin can't go bust. Um, but the businesses that that deal in Bitcoin have a center, have a center of gravity. Ultimately, are going to have to be regulated, and this is this is the difference that we're going to have to find ourselves with. Ultimately, the whole DeFi model is going to be very, very difficult because situations like this are going to arise. So, ultimately, if this is going to have to gain any traction and institutional money is going to come in, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, there are going to have to be regulations around it. And to your point, therefore, as you say. How is this different to any other part of the financial system? Like the dollar can't go bust. Well, let's hope it can't. Let's assume that crypto can't go bust. But banks and right. exchanges and all of these things that control consumer money or pension money, that's where the problem is. And you know, Coinbase is, is, is going to say something along the lines of like, well... Are the customer asset is backed one for one. So if you buy, you know, a cryptocurrency, it's like basically stored in a vault. I mean, not really, but that that's the idea, right? And then other uh, exchanges are going to do more margin loans or something like that. But how a place is going to be making money if you just basically store your crypto in a vault? I understand that you're going to make some money off of transactions, but at some yeah. point you're going to want to lever stuff up. Um, and then if you wind up having something really separated. What does that model actually look like? Not to mention the fact that there is some, but the, okay, but there does seem to be some low hanging fruit. Like, don't take out a loan and collateralize it with the token that the exchange oh my God, yeah. issues. Like, don't do that. 
Like that feels like some basic stuff that maybe that's yep. low hanging fruit to uh, to manage. We're, we're all trying to understand this. We're all trying to also understand how why Shinali Basak has never watched Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But we'll come back to that <laughs> maybe at a different a, a, a different moment in time. As as we were discussing earlier, things are moving pretty fast around here. Shinali, what is your assessment of where we are in this process? We are going from kind of a a multi billion dollar empire to zero very quickly. It's an important question here because in the last couple of days, everybody has been saying, is this the Lehman moment? Is this the end of crypto? It's so important to not talk in hyperbole here because the reality is, is yes, Bitcoin itself, it's under pressure. It has been. The other exchanges and other asset managers have faced a lot of pressure in trading. But things like Coinbase have recovered a little bit of their losses, a lot of their losses the last couple of days. And so FTX, the question then becomes, what is the contagion risk here? There are many brokers, miners, other asset managers that have either had a stake in FTX or counted it as a counterparty. So mm-hmm. we are just seeing today the bankruptcy filing, or yeah, the, the, the statement that they said they are filing. And we are not seeing what the ripple effects are yet, which will take weeks and months to play out. So over the next 48 hours, because you can trade Bitcoin the whole time, right? Yeah. What, it, what are we expecting? Like, what are the questions? What are the texts you're going to be getting? <laughs> well, the, the, uh, clearly because I'm a, the Wall Street reporter, the first set of messages I'm getting is from uh, restructuring advisors who work on bankruptcies because these are people who may want to get involved in the actual uh, bankruptcy itself or work with the creditors to try to recoup funds. The weirdness of this, and we were talking about it earlier, guys, is that what assets, what do they actually have and how yeah. much of it is digital assets? Do people want their do people want their FTT tokens back? Those FTT tokens are not worth anything right now, not much at all. So, what do you actually get back? The reality is, if you're a client and you bought ten thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, you might want your ten thousand bucks back. And can you get that? Is the question. Uh, and when where you- is it? Is it in the United States or is it somewhere else? Well, even if it wasn't, here's the other awkwardness of the whole thing, guy. If you bought ten thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, you entered at your own risk. These are not FDIC-insured institutions. They don't have the same types of consumer protections, but certainly they will be in trouble if they are found to have misled their investors. Shanali, thanks a lot. I know you really wish that crypto didn't trade over the weekend. Um, Really appreciate it, Shanali Basik, joining us there. All right, coming up, more on U.S. markets. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Let's get a quick check in here on U.S. equities. We all know we had that enormous rally yesterday. Um, we're trying to find some footing here. So the Nasdaq holding on to their gains now up by about one percent. The S and P up three tenths of one percent. The Dow down six tenths of one percent. Weighed down by some healthcare names and defensive names as well. Now the bond market is closed. You're not going to get a signal for that. It's closed for Veterans Day. But the dollar is also broadly weaker, which just feeds into the idea: Have we seen a dollar top? Have we seen uh, a yield top? We also got some new MISH numbers, which actually helped move the market to the upside. Interestingly enough, um, we mentioned it earlier, but the UMich sentiment index, excuse me, University of Michigan sentiment index came in at 54.7, a bit weaker. Current conditions a bit weaker, expectations a bit weaker, and inflation expectations a bit entrenched to the upside. So we're going to break down all of this and how it feeds into the market uh, in just a moment. Also, I should point out that China may be reopening to some extent, which also helped fuel that euphoric rally feeling. Um, 
Anyway, other news. Let's go to Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. The UK economy shrank in the third quarter for the first time since the final lockdown of the pandemic as the cost of living crisis squeezed spending and the extra bank holiday for the Queen's funeral shut businesses. Gross domestic product fell 0.2%, marking the start of what is expected to be a protracted recession. The drop, which was shallower than economists expected, but the first since the first quarter of 2021, means Britain is the only group of seven economy that has yet to fully recover from the pandemic. The British government's attempt to economically level up regions outside London is getting help from an unlikely quarter, and that is Wall Street. Firms such as Citigroup, Bank of America, and Bank of New York Mellon are hiring hundreds more staff outside the UK's financial hub as they target cheaper costs and skilled graduates. Manchester, Chester, and Glasgow are among the other cities welcoming more finance jobs. Sources tell Bloomberg Brookfield Asset Management, one of the world's largest investment firms, is expanding in London after scaling up its UK headcount in recent years and snapping up billions of pounds in assets. Sources say the firm has taken on additional space in its Canary Wharf office this year and is planning to add more in coming months. Toronto-based Brookfield co-owns the Canary Wharf Group with the Cutter Investment Authority. That is the latest from the news desk. And Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. So let's get to the back to the markets for a moment. Um, Barclay said, um, talked about the price action over the last 24 hours, and Barclay was saying that a further bear squeeze is possible despite this uncertain outlook, and that a squeeze can lead to FOMO, fear of missing out, as we head into the end of the year. Let's get Cameron Kreiss's take on this. Plus China, crypto, there's just a lot to get through here. Cameron Kreiss, uh, who writes for Live uh, joins us now. Cameron, you've been in the market for a long time. What did yesterday remind you of? Uh, well, at first blush, uh, the 3rd of January 2001, which was uh, about, uh, what, about 10 months after the peak in the dot-com bubble, and the Fed delivered a surprising 50 basis point rate cut, which was the first rate cut of that cycle. And the S&P rallied 5%. Uh, the Nasdaq actually rallied 18, or the NDX, I should say, Nasdaq 100 rallied 18.8% that day, uh, which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. Um, uh, so it was this massive equity rally, short covering, uh, squeeze, whatever, uh, uh, based on, predicated on this idea that the Fed was riding to the rescue, monetary policy was going to, uh, reverse the equity downtrade and save the economy from recession. Um, but given the date that I've just mentioned, January third, two thousand one, you can probably imagine if you have a uh, familiarity with history that it didn't quite work out that way. Kevin, the other factor as well here is is that this is slightly counterintuitive. You get a big rally, and in some ways, it makes the Fed's job harder. Mm -hmm. What we saw yesterday was a huge easing of financial conditions. Indeed. Uh, if you look at the Goldman Financial Conditions Index, which, unlike uh, our Bloomberg one, includes the dollars, so that was probably worth uh, uh, looking at that. It was, I believe, the third largest uh, easing of financial conditions in one day uh, in the entire history of the index, which goes back to the sort of early 1980s. So quite, uh, quite remarkable when you think about it. So... How long do you think then? Put that. Put those two thoughts together. How long do you think then that we can continue to see some inflows into the equity market? Like I hear you of what happened back in in, in two thousand and one, 
but then do you miss out on some short-term juice? You, uh, obviously, that's possible. I mean, this is the, I think the underlying message yesterday of yesterday's move was not directional, but one of amplitude. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't get 5% rallies in an otherwise quiet market. You get uh, 5% rallies in a crazy volatile market. And yeah. a crazy volatile market can, can go up a lot and it can go down a lot. Um, in the short run, uh, you know, the old saying, uh, in the short run, the market is a voting machine, but in the longer term, it's a weighing machine. Well, in the short term, if, if uh, fast money is leaning underweight or short, then absolutely it can continue to go up because with the end of the year coming, Thanksgiving here in the United States, people aren't going to want to warehouse a lot of directional risk. If they've had a good year, um, why would you risk getting squeezed out of, uh, uh, out of uh, that outperformance? Well, you wouldn't, so you, you trim risk. Um, Thanksgiving is in less than two weeks. It, yep. It's reasonable to expect it to be fairly quiet, um, uh, ironically enough. Um, so that's entirely possible. Um, but if you're looking on a somewhat longer term, uh, yeah, I mean, this was counterproductive, at least in terms of the Fed's, um, you know, the yep. Fed's policy goals. And indubitably, it was a better CPI report than expected but by no greater magnitude than we had three months ago. The July report that was released in August also beat on both a monthly and a year-on-year margin um, headline and core by two-tenths of a percent. So this this wasn't any sort of unprecedented, never-before-seen beat. Um, It was a confluence, I think, of Maybe the market pricing had gotten sort of ding-dong at the extreme, obviously, after the, after the November Fed meeting, um, and, and punters were, were still okay, running okay. short, short equities just, and bonds. Let's just talk about that. The Fed has already pretty much signaled that the next meeting is more likely than anything else to deliver a 50 basis point hike. Yeah. And yesterday's data in some ways just confirmed that, I thought. Yeah. So... Why, what is, what was it in positioning that got the market to a stage, a frenzy, that it could deliver such a move? Well, it, when you have a move like that, you know, I think you have to look at uh, optionality or short gamma or whatever you want to call okay. it. Okay. Um, and that, that, that's, it's, it's much more difficult to make an assessment of that than it historically has been because so much option flow is microdated. Uh, I think I read somewhere that, I mean, don't, I mean, I guess you have to quote me on this because I'm saying it on the radio, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't hold me to it. But something Production like and consumption 30, are simultaneous. Yes, 30 to 35 percent of the flow, option flow yesterday was for options expiring yesterday. Right. 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 So, okay. I mean, how do you model that in advance? Well, you don't. Right, right, because you don't you don't know you don't know that flow is going to come about until you until you see it uh, until you see it materialize. Now, was that hedging of shorts? Was it speculative longs? I mean, I don't know. So, how also? Okay, so that's one part of it. So that's going to just store any sort of longer term price signal. And then you have all this noise about Bitcoin and crypt. Excuse me, I should say crypto, not Bitcoin. All the news of crypto and FTX. I'm wondering how that also just made much more noise in the market to find a more cohesive direction? 
Yeah, I mean, that was obviously the driver a couple of days ago when we had a big drop. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, maybe that encouraged some fast money to press shorts in, in tech stocks or, 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 or whatever. I mean, I'm a little skeptical of a broader read-through into uh, traditional financial assets. I mean, obviously, there's a sentiment issue in terms of if you look at the Venn diagram of people who invest in super speculative rubbish stocks and the people who invest in crypto, there's probably a lot of overlap there. So, yeah, it can influence sort of the super speculative um, wing of financial markets. But in terms of any sort of systemic risk, I mean, listen, unless unless some bank has, you know, a ten, lent $10 billion to this FTX dude, I mean, where's the where's the transmission mechanism? I don't really think there is one. Um, and the the well, there's indubitably been a wealth loss because of all this crypto stuff. Yeah, well, that yeah, that but that um, so it's the portfolio effect that I'm wondering about. But but here's the thing. Here's the thing, guy. Uh, the total market cap of crypto has fallen from just under three trillion to just under a trillion dollars. Right now, look at the combined market cap loss of say Amazon, Meta, and Tesla from the peak. Mm-hmm. I think okay. it's probably about the same. Right. Amazon itself has lost, or at one point, it lost a trillion dollars in market cap by itself. You know, Meta, 750. I'm pretty sure Tesla was more than yeah, but you, but you, but Yeah, but my, you start to add all that up. That's a, that's, a, that's a huge loss. And I appreciate that one particular portion of it may not be the tipping point, but it could be. And you do wonder whether there's a, there is a kind of portfolio effect. I, I am, it's going to change my behavior if I've got these kinds of losses within my portfolio. And I'm wondering, what I'm trying to understand at the moment is what kind of effect could you see off that? Uh, well, and what, what does history tell us when you get these big losses? Well, again, I would say that the losses actually aren't that big relative to uh, uh, losses, from, say, from the stock market. So isolating. No, the they, no, but, but, but all of this are is together. These, about, these are, are all the same. Let's assume, let's assume they're all the same trade. Okay, well, the, the math normally says uh, that a, for every dollar of wealth you lose, you spend something like four cents less. So there is a, a consumption uh, issue. Um, now, that's mitigated to some extent by the fact that you still have a near record amount of cash on the balance sheet of households. So in aggregate, there is a nice buffer to weather that storm. Now, on an individual basis, that's not necessarily the case. And if you put your life savings into some stupid token on an exchange that's gone bust, well, yeah, I'm kind of unlucky, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, on On a macro basis, there is a possible silver lining in the sense of if a reasonable cohort of the potential labor force has not entered the labor force because they've been flipping coins on FTX, well, guess what? That would be a line to draw. Now they're they're, going to be entering the labor force. So the labor Um, force participation rate goes up because some crypto guys went bankrupt. I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, I'm I'm kind of stretching credulity here, but uh, if you want to look at on the bright side of life, that's maybe one area you can look. And we always appreciate a Monty Python reference here, so so we'll just go with that one. Um, uh, okay, uh, another question for you here. Has the dollar peaked? Uh, it's, it kind of feels that way. Um, certainly, it's shaken a lot of people out, uh, for sure. I think, you know, yesterday 
had a lot to do with CTAs getting taken behind the woodshed, uh, particularly in in uh, in dollar yen. Um, that being said, uh, I think we are now maybe a little more two way in the in in the possibility uh, of of surprise. Uh, you know, when you had peak rates. Above, I mean, it's easy to say this in hindsight, I recognize, but when you had Fed rates being priced at a peak of whatever the peak was, five and a bit percent, uh, having moved a lot after Powell, I, you know, I think you could say that um, there wasn't much more room in the near term for those expectations to get pushed out. Um, and obviously, we've seen we've seen them susceptible to more favorable data. Yep. Now, you know, having repriced 30, 40 basis points, maybe that's a little more two-way. And if you do get a hawkish surprise um, in next month's CPI, for example, what's to say that you don't re-rate back to to where we started? Okay, Kevin, end of the week. On rates, and that should support the dollar, I would think. End of this week. still an F. Are you more more risk-on or risk-off at the end of this week? Uh, Well, what's my time horizon? Just, I... This past week. Five yeah, days? This, oh, I, I see. How, how end has of the this, year? Uh, end of the year. Okay. Uh, I, listen, I I, uh, I would probably be a bit more risk off. I would say, although I I think, um, well, you know, I think maybe that that sort of designation. I'm not sure how useful it is because I, I'm trying uh, to find out if you're feeling a bit better about the world, but. But no, I'm still I appreciate pretty skeptical. I'm, okay, I'm still quite that, skeptical. that's really where I'm going. He's with still this. Cameron. Okay. <laughs> Cameron Cries, have a great weekend, sir. Thank you very much indeed. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You are listening to Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. A little earlier on today, the President of the United States, Joe Biden, delivered a speech in Egypt at the COP27 conference. After that speech, he beetled back to the airport, he got on Air Force One, and he headed towards the G20 summit, which is going to be taking place in Bali and Indonesia over this weekend and into the beginning of next week. Bloomberg senior government reporter Ian Mollow is going to be covering that event for us. And the critical event that we are all watching for, Ian, is the meeting between the leaders of China and the United States. The leader of China, Xi Jinping, the leader of the United States, Joe Biden. What should we expect from that meeting? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think U.S. officials have been really trying to keep expectations low for this. I think the U.S. and China disagree on so much, uh, have fundamentally uh, opposing positions and views on so many issues from Taiwan uh, to, you know, China's role in Asia uh, and in international institutions, that there isn't really too much uh, for them to agree on and things that they can't could maybe agree on in good times like, uh, you know, cooperation on climate change or a global mm-hmm. health and the pandemic uh, have tended to fall by the wayside as the uh, tensions have gotten worse over Taiwan. So I think one of the things we're looking for out of this meeting is really whether there could be any stabilization of ties. Uh, that is what the Biden administration is saying they want to try and achieve to prevent a sort of downward spiral from mm-hmm. this getting any worse, really. Can they do all that while also pushing on trade, for example, and also trying to get 
I'm assuming some sort of backdoor to Vladimir Putin when it comes to negotiating table. Can can that be actually achieved? Yeah. So Xi Jinping is coming into this, uh, you know, from a relative position of strength. He just, you know, consolidated power uh, domestically is one in a new term. Uh, those are easier to get in, in China than uh, faring in the midterms. But um, he uh, isn't likely, I think, to budge on certain things like uh, their kind of ambivalent position on, on the war in Russia. They've been pretty hesitant to say anything too direct about about Putin and the war uh, in Ukraine kind of thing. It's up to both sides to try and figure something out. Um, on trade, you know, whether it's tariffs or any of the broader sort of trade issues, um, it, it's hard to see either either side giving ground. I mean, in the U.S., people have viewed the trade measures that the, that the U.S. has in place as giving them leverage over China. And in recent weeks, we've only seen that increase with new export controls on high-tech chips, which uh, I'm very sure will come up in that meeting. And, uh, you know, the Biden administration is going to come in for some criticism on that because, uh, you know, to the Chinese, this looks very much like uh, the containment, you know, of China that, that, uh, America constantly says it's not trying to achieve. So it's it's pretty tense on all fronts. But I think on, on some of the major issues, I, I don't think we should expect, uh, you know, Biden and Xi to walk away from this with, uh, you know, significantly different positions from 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 going into it. Ian, what are policy people saying about what comes next? As you say, containment, maybe that is where we are now. But what came after containment was rollback during the Cold War. Is that where we're going? Is this a, is this a relationship that is deteriorating? Yeah, it is, and I think uh, you know most of the people that I speak to uh, in Washington and, and overseas are expecting things to get worse. Uh, everyone has been looking at this meeting as a potential stabilizer, something that could prevent things from getting worse. Um, one issue that's interesting for Biden domestically is obviously the sort of rolling developments of, of the midterms, how much progress the Republicans have made, whether they'll be able to put more pressure on him uh, on the China uh, file uh, or not, uh, given how the numbers eventually settle. Um, so that's kind of one thing, uh, you know, sort of in the medium term that I think some some people are looking at. But I think in general, in the region, people just want people just want the U.S. and China to kind of cool the rhetoric a little bit. A lot of the facts on the ground haven't necessarily changed, um, you know, at least, you know, on either side. It's really, in some ways, it's the way people are perceiving each other on either side. You know, obviously, Chinese officials have been sort of locked down under COVID zero for for a while. Um, There hasn't been too much interaction with between Xi and global leaders. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So there's a lot of room for misunderstanding, for misperceptions, for people to think things are worse than they are. And I think a lot of people just want the U.S. and China to get to a point where, okay, we agree to disagree on a number of issues, but we're not going to let it get out of control. And I think that's the, I mean, that's the messaging going into this from from the U.S. side anyway. And that's, you know, that's a pretty low bar. Uh, well, you know, we just don't want things to get worse. Uh, and that's kind of it. Well, to be uh, fair enough. Um, so I, I asked this question to David Weston on TV, and I don't think he, he, he thought it was that interesting, but I'm going to ask it of you anyway. Um, so- sure. When we have uh, President Biden um, going to Saudi Arabia and there was that fist bump, right? And like here in the U.S., we took that as like, okay, it's a fist bump. That's something. It's not a handshake, but something. And it didn't go over that well in Saudi Arabia. But the U.S. didn't really know that. 
what kind of physical interaction are we going to be looking at between Xi and Biden that's actually going to tell us something? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, summits like this are always fraught with, you know, you know, bad shirts and group photos and sort of, you know, um, things like that. And, and I just think they're going to definitely avoid some kind of group photo where, you know, you have the Russians and the Chinese and the U.S. all and like NATO allies sort of all, uh, you know, intermingling. I think they'll probably be pretty cautious. I mean, I think Look, I think they'll probably do a handshake of some kind. Um, you know, Biden constantly plays up how many times he's met yeah. uh, the Chinese president over the years, you know, when he was vice president or even before. Um, and so, you know, maybe he's going to come into this with a little bit more personal affection. Uh, you know, he, he's just come out of an election. Um, you know, foreign policy very rarely plays too prominently in, in U.S. domestic politics anyway. So, you know, even if he gets criticized in, you know, um, you know, Washington, uh, you know, media, I don't know if, you know, it's going to swing votes, you know, across, you know, the Midwest or something like that. If he if he fist bumps or, you know, backflaps uh, she for, you know, if there's any difference there. OK. Ian, we're really looking forward to the coverage. Really looking forward to the coverage. Uh, thank you for setting it up for us. We'll see what happens over the next few days. Ian Mollo, this is Bloomberg.